What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Sapira. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. That's, and it's funny. I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. Uh, I'll tell you why. Welcome to Death Row Diaries, the only podcast hosted live from Death Row. I am Matt Ralston. And I'm William Aguero. Today, Bill, we have to talk about Pam. Pam Hupp. She's a real piece of work, huh? Yeah. I mean, this woman right here, and she gives a lot of the murders we've covered on the show a run for their money just in just her mindset I think the audience is going to like her yeah she scares me I feel like she probably watched a lot of murder mysteries too in a bathrobe smoking a cigarette type of thing we'll get into it but we have a quick listener question from Joe in Wolverhampton England sounds like a nice place they all sound like nice places over there And Joe asks, I was wondering if living on death row ever really feels like home. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I guess the answer, the the obvious answer is no, because this is not home. However, there's like a lot of different ways you can look at this. There's a lot of guys in prison who refuse to clean their cells because they say, well, this is not my home. I could... I've been put in this place and I have to live here so I won't clean it. Uh, you know, it's not home, but I've been here for 36 years. So it is home. Um, the cage I live in is my home. It's my studio. It's it's everything I do. It's my production studio. It's, it's my meeting place where, where Matt and I discuss cases. So does it feel like home? It shouldn't, but it is home. And I think the faster that I was able to grasp that idea and understand it, I was able to accept that I'm here and I'm going to make the best of it. So my cell's always immaculate. You know, I, I treat it like my home. I treat it like my studio. Um, and I, because of that, because of that mindset, I'm able to then produce the art, books, podcasts, Everything I do is because it's, you know, I'm in my environment. So it's never really home, but it's the home I have for now. And because of that, I'm going to do the best I can with it. It's like that whole thing, man. You got lemons. Are you going to have lemonade or are you going to be a sourpuss? I figured lemonade's a better choice. Yeah. And you don't have a cell phone. I think the average person would get like three times as much work done if they didn't have a cell phone. I'm not even kidding because you just you're tethered to it. You can't really turn it off, and you have to check it 
you know, a dozen times a minute because it's just it's always something there and it breaks your concentration. I'm, I guess I'm talking about myself. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I've been in prison so long that when there was these, they used to call them mobile phones, you had to be a millionaire. It was as big as a brick and it had a big antenna on it. Usually people in, in flashy cars had them on New York. I've been in prison since 1983. There were no, like, uh, communication of connectedness and all that stuff because well, we didn't believe in that back then it was a payphone you walk you drop you drop a quarter in there or a nickel or whatever it was and you call somebody and you really didn't have that type of interaction it was you walk to a person's house and you talk to them and it's pretty much the same in prison I mean people got things done in the 50s 60s and 70s and I'd argue that the era of innovation in the industrial revolution was done in a time when there was there wasn't even telephones so you can be productive without those things. I'm not sure the whole dynamic of it being tied to your ear and stuff, but with me, I'm able to do what I do because it gives me the opportunity to escape that whole tyranny of connectedness and really concentrate on my environment and who's in it, and that's why we can bring you this type of content that no one else can bring you. Make sure and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries. And check out our Patreon page. That is patreon.com slash Diaries, where you'll get bonus content and exclusive content just for our supporters, who we appreciate very much. And thank you, Joe, for the question. Keep your questions coming, and we will get to all of them at some point. Unless they're terrible, you know who you are. Now, Bill, the thing about Pam is that she's a psycho, right? So she, I don't know if you caught a lot about her upbringing. Did you read anything about this in your research? No, what I do have about her is that she's from a very early age was working at insurance companies. And her whole motivation was to learn as much as she could in that field. And she did exactly that. And they caught her. She was arrested or she was fired a number of times because she was forging signatures on different policies. So I don't know too much about her childhood, but I know that very early on she began in the life insurance policy business, specifically for State Farm. And from there, she branched out into flipping houses, which was is basically you buy a home that's kind of in ruins or in bankruptcy or, or it's been repossessed, and then they... Um, they you know, do a little work to them and they flip them. She had a company called H2. Probably did pretty well in that era, flipping houses. It wasn't something people were doing on the regular basis. There wasn't like 50 TV shows about it. It's interesting because she, at one point, I guess was a stay-at-home mom, 
although you know a lot of moms are stay-at-home moms right after they give birth but you know her and her first husband they, they couldn't really make it work financially and I'm wondering if that stress you know sometimes like people from a poor background which she's not but people that really had to really struggle you know they become hyper motivated by money because that that feeling of not knowing if you're going to eat you never get over it you can become a billionaire and it's still it still really is kind of in the back of your mind all the time so i think there's some of that going on with her is she just she realized or something at, at some point that she she can't be poor because of what that entails yeah that, that's a good theory but i, I don't believe it and, I, and i'll tell you why it's real simple before she was married she was caught on a number of occasions forging signatures on life insurance policies so therefore she was already before she was married she was already motivated in this whole thing with money i think it has to do more with her seeing an opportunity um and having that mindset where i don't care who it hurts i'm going to take the money or she convinced herself it's a life insurance policy or it's a policy to do insurance what difference does it really make the insurance company is insured so I'm not hurting anybody. I think that could be possibly a start, but we see that after she's married, about nine years of marriage, where she tries for that company of flipping houses called H2 Partners LLC, and she's working for State Farm, that she then goes on disability and begins to collect benefits because of back, leg, and neck pain. Look, that's just, she don't want to work anymore. She figures it's an easy way of making money and staying at home and doing whatever else she's going to do. And this is basically where it starts. You know, it's 2010, and she's now on disability, and she has nothing else to do but to think of all these schemes that she later on actually does. She got this job in insurance and just learned every scam, which I'm sure anyone that works for State Farm kind of knows how to do scams, right? As It's just part of the job. You would have to. Um, but she... She took it almost as like a, a training for like a school for scoundrels, really. Well, and that's exactly what it was. She learned the trade. She saw the advantages she could take because she knew the business. And she used to her advantage with, you know, funny enough, in 2010, when she is, uh, you know, with disability, her big splash into the world of murder starts. And I'll call back and let you know about that. Betsy Faria was a friend of Pam Hupp's, but it's interesting. They had been friends because they worked at an insurance company together, and Pam had been fired for forging signatures on forms. She's almost like one of those pedophile priests that gets shuffled around from parish to parish, except for her it's with insurance companies. Uh, and so when they worked together, Betsy and Pam were were good friends they would go out together and, and go to each other's homes for parties and stuff but they had kind of lost touch after Pam had been fired but Betsy very unfortunately gets diagnosed with terminal cancer and Pam all of a sudden shows back up yeah that, that's really interesting that happened yeah in 2010 as I mentioned Cup um, is on back and injury disability and her friend, Elizabeth K. Faria, who's known as Betsy, in that same year, 
diagnosed with breast cancer. And it's just a very quick decline for her health because by October of 2011, um, it moves to her liver and is diagnosed as being terminal. So yes, Betsy is at her beck and call, but suddenly, just days before her death, meaning Betsy, she changes her will from everything going to her husband, but putting Hub as the beneficiary. And it was about $150,000 policy, which I want the audience to remember, Pam is an expert at signatures. And that's what she does, she forges things. So, of course, the policy is with State Farm, the company that they used to work, that at least that Pam used to work for, and suddenly these documents now make Pam the beneficiary and take her husband and her daughters off of it. The interesting thing about, part is about this is that there is like a, it's like the rule that as soon as the, the dice fall or the domino effect start, it just continues on with Pam. She seems to plan these things very carefully. And it's interesting because she is um, going to cancer therapy. And we're talking a few days later, on December the 27th, Betsy undergoes chemotherapy at a cancer rehabilitation center. And, you know, she's supposed to go home to her mother's home. And she's actually driven there by Hub, who really is not supposed to be there. Betsy's husband, Russ, is supposed to bring her there. But that's where things get really sketchy here. Because it almost seems from afar that Russ has some nefarious motives in this because of how things play out. And Betsy seems like the perfect victim here. Yeah, I kind of feel like I know how this went down. Uh, to introduce Russ, he seems like a good guy, but he's maybe not like the best family man. I think he was a good husband and a good family man, but he just has this um, this part of him where he likes to hang out with his buddies, smoke pot, and drink beers. And so and he's bad with money. Let's be honest. He probably gambled away a lot of money, and that's that's not good. And I think that's why Betsy was maybe receptive to Pam suggesting, hey, why don't you leave me the money? We don't know Russ, what Russ is going to do with it. And then the idea was that Pam would give the money uh, then to Betsy's children. But I bet you a million dollars that Pam was making up all these rumors about why Russ should give Pam the money instead of him, such as uh, I was driving by a casino and I saw him throwing $100 bills out the window of his car type of thing. I'm sure she did that. But so unfortunately, I mean, do you want to talk about that day when Betsy's found? Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, I think this is all very relevant because it looks like there's a mastermind, a puppet master, manipulating everybody. And look, Russ is probably like most guys, okay? He, you know, he likes to gamble a little bit, he talks to his friends a lot, he likes to hang out, drink beer, watch movies. He's not really that concerned with his terminally ill wife, and I don't know if it's because he, you know, 
maybe because of years together, he's not that into her. I don't really know. Maybe she was, you know, not the, the most uh, attractive woman because she was sick. And she probably complained. I don't know this. But it seems to fit Pam's plan because he's the perfect stooge in all of this. And what he says later on really seals his own coffin because it's perfect. And of course, as you said, Pam is behind all this stuff and she's pushing this narrative. So here's what happens. On the 27th of December, Betsy undergoes chemotherapy and she's supposed to go to her mother's house where Russ is supposed to drive her home. But Hub, meaning Pam, shows up and claims that, look, I'm gonna do it, you know, I should be doing this thing. Her husband, Russ, who's actually he goes along with it because he wants to hang out with his friends. And he, he claims he was at watching movies between 6 and 9 p.m. at his buddy's house, which gives, you know, a perfect opportunity for something to go amiss. So, um, Pam says that she drops off, um, her friend Betsy at 7 p.m. at the house. At 7.21 p.m., Betsy's daughter calls the home, but there's no answer. Russ, while all this is going on, her husband Russ, instead of being there with his wife, he's going through chemo, she's terminal. This is what the majority of us would say, why wasn't the husband with her? It's very convenient that he wasn't there, or at least he has the alibi that he wasn't there. Those are like the first drop of the hat. They get to raise their eyebrow and say, well, what the hell? So then when Russ does get home after watching movies and stopping at an Arby's, getting something to eat, and then driving home, he arrives home at 9.40 p.m. Right after he arrives home, there is a 911 call, and he says to the operator, my wife has killed herself. Well, that's a problem. Ten minutes later, authorities arrive. And any moron from 60 yards away to tell she didn't kill herself. Why do you ask? She had 55 stab wounds to her face, chest, her wrists were cut to the bone, and she had a knife sticking out of her neck. There was another knife under the pillow of the couch where she was laying. The first responder says that she died prior to that being found at least two hours. That is the official finding by the first responders. Come on, I mean, listen to this. Matt, if you walk into a room and you find God forbid, your G.I. Joe doll, it's been stabbed 55 times with a knife sticking out of his neck, it's wrist or... So Matt, I mean, any moron, any moron at 60 yards away can look at this scene, and if you got home and saw your G.I. Joe doll stabbed 55 times with a knife sticking out of his neck, you're not gonna call 911 and say, G.I. Joe committed suicide, would you? It's rather impossible to rationalize, I would say, in Russ's defense, 
Betsy had attempted suicide once before that we know of. And if you have terminally ill, if you're terminally ill with cancer, it would make sense that one would kill themselves. Everything else after that, the physical evidence, I guess, kind of makes it... I, I don't know if he's just, uh, wh what is he, just a lughead? I mean, what's going on here? Exactly. And, well, look, and what that does, it makes law enforcement immediately turn their attention to who? The hus husband. Husbands are always the first suspects. And he doesn't do anything to dispel that because they search his home, and what do they find in his closet? A pair of bloody slippers. I mean, this is like O.J. Simpson all over again, but this woman, Pam, is obviously either involved in this with Russell, maybe they're having an affair, or Russell did it himself and was stupid enough to call and say, hey, she committed suicide, which obviously she didn't. And there are bloody slippers in my room, obviously because I did this job, and I took off the slippers and stuck them in my closet so someone would find them later. So either this guy is the dumbest guy in the world, or it's hard to even imagine what this guy was thinking. But the authorities certainly don't have uh, any hesitation. They arrest him. He's arrested in the death of his mother. And his wife. You know, he takes a lie detector. What's that? His wife, right? Yeah, he's arrested for the death of his wife, for the murder of his wife. Um. He is given a lie detector test, which he fails for whatever reason. Um, and then, of course, this is where Pam comes in. Pam then volunteers information to the police department. And that information is that he's a heavy drinker and that he's violent. She also suggests that her friend, her best friend, Betsy, is going to divorce him because she believes he's cheating on her. Pam also suggests to law enforcement that they should take a look at Betsy's computer because who knows? Maybe she's written something in there that can be incriminating. Wow. You know, and here we go. They open the computer up and what do they find? They find a document where Betsy is expressing fears of her husband. She expresses that he may kill her. So, of course, it's almost like they're handing the case to the police department for them to make the arrest. And that's exactly what they do. They arrest Russ. They hit him with a $200,000 fine for bail, which is very low if you think about it. And he can't bail out, so he's stuck in, um, in jail during this whole process of his murder trial for his wife's murder. And of course, look, how could you blame the family of his wife? They all jump on a bandwagon with Pam against the guy. Yeah, he's a horrible guy. We've heard rumors that he hits her and all this stuff. So of course, everybody turns on Russ, on Michael Corbin. And of course, I'm sorry, not Michael Corbin, uh, Russell. And so, again, it's just a really bad situation where it gets worse for this guy because they take him to trial. And based on Pam's testimony, which was key to this whole thing, they convict him and send him to prison. Yeah. 
Pam's poisoning the police against Russ was that of a, the job of a master manipulator. You know, she kind of throws stuff out there nonchalantly. Her whole vibe is that she's gossiping over coffee, but then she slips in these really specific things, and these cops just took it at face value. Now, I want to ask you when we come back, Russ is such a rube. Did he play any part in why Pam selected Betsy? Yeah, that's a really good question. I guess we'll have to get into that after I come back. So, yeah, this all took place in 2011. And um, as you mentioned, did this, well, did this guy have anything to do with why Pam picked your friend? I don't think so. I think that what really got her to pick her friend was she was terminally ill. It was easy to fake her life insurance policy papers. And I don't believe that her that Betsy, who was murdered, signed over those papers to, um, to her friend. I'll tell you why. She was an experienced insurance policy seller or salesperson or agent, whatever you want to call it. So she knew that very easily she could have, it's okay, her husband's gambling, okay. She could have very easily written her will where it said that her daughters could not receive that money until let's say they were 25 years of age. She could have written all this out so that money could have been held by an attorney or by the insurance company until that age. She knew this. That's what tells me there's no way in the world that she put her friend, who she knew had been caught for forging signatures, at the insurance agency and is basically a criminal. No, I don't believe that. I believe that Pam actually forged those signatures because it was done days before her death. why is that so relevant? It's so relevant because had she done it way prior, they could have discovered it. So if, she, if, she, if it's done right before she dies, or when Pam knew she would shoot killer, there was a less likelihood that anyone would find those signature and therefore challenge them. Do you kind of get my point? Yes. But when you kind of back up and look at it, it looks even more suspect that it was like a couple days before. Well, of course, but at this point, she's got the husband pegged, and it adds to the suspicion to the husband. Look, she knew her husband was going to kill her. Look, she wrote her computer. Look at her actions right before she dies. She takes her husband away as being the benefactor, and she gives it to her best friend. It shows a pattern of Betsy's state of mind. What, what, where he was in her state of mind. But this was all planned and put together by Pam to implicate the stooge. I didn't, I didn't think about that. So the fact that Pam, uh, you know, conned her way into the life insurance, that actually serves a dual purpose. It looks bad for Russ because he can't even be trusted with the money, as if he had motivation. Exactly. Right. And what, what is this going on? Attorneys in court always say this. Your Honor, it's not for the truth of the matter. It's for the defendant's state of mind. Well, he, here we're doing the same thing. It's not really for the truth. 
we don't know what she was thinking, but it suggests her state of mind is she can't trust her husband. And how do we know this? Look at her computer. Her computer has her fear of her husband. So it's the perfect setup. And the cops bite, hook, line, and sinker. They, a lot of people told them to check out Pam because she could be a suspect, and they ignored that. They went after Russ because he was the perfect guy. A disloyal husband who his wife feared him already, a heavy drinker who beat his wife, and all of it was made up. And on top of that, you have the victim's family completely turning on him as well. What do you think was going to happen? They convict this guy, and they sent him to prison with life. And that's simple. They convicted him. They convicted him, though, but the case, after they decided they were going to charge him, and this happens fairly often, uh, reminds me of a a case that I did a, another podcast on called Murder on Ice, and that's about a murder that happened in Alaska. But they decide they're going to charge these people or this person, and then once it comes to building the case they realize that they don't really have much of a case but it doesn't matter they've already picked who they want because russ uh had a stone cold alibi he had four friends that he was drinking and smoking weed with who vouched for his whereabouts and then on top of that when he goes home on the way he stops to get cigarettes he stops to get pet food he stops to get a burger and there's video of all this so there's like hard evidence that he didn't do it, but at that point it doesn't matter. Exactly. And that's what, it just shows the competency of that police department. And, and this, and a lot of things are happening simultaneously in this case. That's why it's so interesting because we have now, what we can look at is the first victim who is Betsy. She's now been buried. She was stabbed to death. And, the husband, Russ, is in prison, case closed, yeah, but not so fast. It, it seems that this woman, Pup, who is also known as Pam, really can't stop. It, 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 it escalates, and it's just about the money. So take a look at this. Very similar again. So Pam's mother, Shirley Newman, who has dementia and suffers from, you know, different type of ailments attributed to age. She is again in the car with Pam after a hospital visit who Pam volunteered to take her mother to. Doesn't seem very suspicious. So Pam drops her off at the senior living facility. And she tells the staff members there, well, don't expect her for dinner tonight. Just check on her tomorrow morning for breakfast. What happens? The following day, staff do as Pam suggested. They, they go to check on uh, uh, Shirley Newman, and they find that she has fallen off the balcony and is dead on the floor. And the autopsy says, well, yeah, she was, you know, she died from the fall massive injuries to the chest and back area. They checked the railing and the railing was broken. So it suggests that she leaned on the railing and fell three stories and died. Very interesting though, her blood 
work comes back and she has 84 micrograms, I hope I'm saying that correctly, micrograms of a sedative called sulpidem, and I hope I pronounced that correctly, in her blood, which is eight times the normal dose. Subsequently after that, law enforcement gets a tip that Pam killed her mother for the insurance, which was what? Between the kids, everyone got a fair share, and so she got around $250,000 cash from the death of her mother. Interesting, huh? Yeah. Also interesting, this balcony that she fell through was made out of solid steel bars. Like, I know it's St. Louis, and there's enough murders going on that people are basically lying in the street, but I, I still don't understand how you don't put these things together. I mean, it's like they're not even trying. Yeah, you would, you would think so, yeah. It, 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 there seems to be a lot of stuff going on, and this happens, remember, this happens fairly shortly after, it's less than two years after her friend, um, Betsy is murdered, and she's at the center of it. She's the last person to see her mother alive. Uh, Betsy is, the, uh, I mean, she's the last person to see Betsy alive as well. So we have two deaths now. One is obviously a murder, but we have the murderer in prison, who is her husband, Russ. And now you have her mother dead, and there is no real investigation because it looks like an accident. Uh, the insurance is paid out to, of course, Pam. And really, there's an investigation, but it's very short, and it's closed immediately after that. But that's not enough, ladies and gentlemen, because there seems to be a lot of rumors going around that Pam is behind at least the mother, the murder of her mother. And she then is trying to throw the cops off her trail. So as you suggested at the beginning of the podcast, that she's probably sitting in her bathroom watching true crime uh, programs and listening to true crime podcasts because her next move is almost right out of a movie script. Yes. Yeah, she is uh, emboldened, perhaps, <laughs> or... Because I don't think she's been doing this her whole life because she's only killing people she's acquainted with or, or closer or friends with or related to. But uh, this is... It's really weird when we talk about like serial killers. We'll talk about maybe if she's a serial killer or not. It's very disgusting to murder an innocent person. We all know that. But then there's sometimes where you're just like, really? Like it's even... It's even more, you know, it's it's even more disgusting in certain instances, which doesn't really make sense, but it's just an emotional reaction. Yeah, I think you're totally right. Um, all these people, she obviously knew them. But it's almost like her, she loses consciousness of the trail she leaves. And, and this is really what seals her coffin, because it puts the, the nail in her coffin, because of how brash she was. She, she put herself right in the middle of everything. And the truth is, had she not committed this last murder, 
there's a very good chance she probably would have gotten away with killing one. They would have suspected her, but there's really no way of proving she did the other ones. This one, however, is just so obvious, and the physical evidence is so uh, blatant that you really would have to be a disabled person or a freaking retard not to figure out what she did. So here's what she did. A person she was acquainted to by the name of Louis, and I hope I don't get his last name messed up, Gumpenberger, who has mental and physical disabilities because of a car crash in 2005, is found shot in her home by her five times. So, you know, maybe the guy tried to go in there, tried to harm her, and that's exactly what she tells the police. She calls, and 911 seems to be playing a center, center stage in this particular case, in all these cases, because someone's always calling 911. So she calls 911, and this is August of 16, 2016. And she says that she wants to report a burglary in progress. And the police arrive, and she's already now shot this guy, Lewis. And what she says is that while she came home, this guy jumped her outside with a knife. And please get this. She then knocked the knife out of his hand with a karate chop, then ran inside the house where he came after her, where she shot him. Not once, ladies and gentlemen. No, 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 no. Not twice. Not three times. But five times. So, well, okay, this guy obviously tried to do something to her. On top of that, in his pocket, very conveniently, they find $900 in crisp $100 bills with a note that says that he should, kid, that he should kidnap Pam Hub, take her to the bank to get Russ's money. I don't know how that plays into this. Then take her back home, and I quote, get rid of her. Very convenient, right, Matt? Everything is laid out again so the police can follow the breadcrumb trail. Au contraire, mon frère. Let me call back. Hey, Matt. Yeah, this sounds like a story that someone in the throes of a cocaine binge would come up with. I would say... <laughs> Her problem here, way too many variables, way too much going on, right? Yeah, too much convenience. I mean, this thing is almost like if they're they're putting the nose of the law enforcement to a particular bre a breadcrumb trail and they want them to follow. They've given you every opportunity. Everything is just too perfect, too laid out. The killer's got, or the kidnapper's got the dollar bills in his pocket. He's got a note that specifies what he's supposed to do. It's just too convenient. And of course, look, this is where really things get really weird, but it, it doesn't look like Lewis is the fir her first choice to do this. Because as they begin to investigate, they find reports of a woman matching Pam Hub's description 
who had approached a woman named Carol Alfred, posing as an NBC Nightline producer, it offers that woman a thousand dollars to do a reenactment of a 911 call. They have security footage that show a woman in question. Who is driving Pam Hump's car is the person who approached this, this woman. So, again, it's beginning to look like she was looking for a victim. And then when that one didn't succeed, she tried Lewis and she succeeded. She was perfect. Disabilities. I mean, the guy really could, was very disabled. He was in a car crash. So what the police believe she did, they believe that she lured Lewis to her home and did the same thing as she did with the woman uh, that we just uh, spoke about. She basically told Lewis that she was also an NBC analyst and or NBC producer to get him to reenact his 911 call. What she didn't realize is that cell phone records show that she was at Lewis's front door an hour before the shooting, which disputes the whole thing that I've never met this guy before. Big clue for the police right there. If you're at the killer's front door, it suggests that you drove him there or drove him back to your house to set him up. That she had did it, done it before trying to get another woman to reenact this 911 call suggests that this is she's behind it. But even if that wasn't enough, the numbers are what kill her. So she offers $1,000 to the woman, Carol Alfred. She says that this guy tried to kill her and there's 900 bucks in his pocket with a note to kill her. But when the police search her house, they find a $100 bill on Hop's dresser. And look at this. The serial numbers of that $100 bill match the nine single $100 bills in Lewis's pockets. So it's obvious she went to the bank, she ordered 10 crisp $100 bills, the teller gave them to her in sequence, so all the, the serial numbers match in sequence. So when they find the $100 bills in his pocket, they look at the serial number, and those serial numbers match the one on her dresser. Busted. Uh, what, how she can explain that? I don't know. I mean, I know she tried, but can we do a quick brainstorming session here? If you're trying to lure a stranger, an adult stranger, into your car and then into the woods to kill them, is saying that you're a TV producer and offering them $1,000 when you're in St. Louis where there's not like a real TV production industry, is that the best way to go? Because she might have got away with it if this woman hadn't been aware of what she was doing. Well, I think she's not a master murderer, that's for sure. She's never done it before. Well, she, she had, but she wasn't really good at it. I just think she began to believe that she could lay any narrative down and law enforcement would follow it. And, you know, she's now involved in, she's the center stage of three different killings or, or, or the resulting in people's deaths. Uh, Betsy, the stabbing victim, her own mother, 
falls off a railing, and now this guy. In, in every situation, you have bad hope. So I think police began to look at this and said, okay, this is the way that she did it. And she's unsophisticated. She was smart enough because she set up Russ. That was brilliant. And the mother thing, well, kind of convenient, easy to do. But when she had to make a whole scenario, she kind of screwed up. And this guy obviously went along with it. A lot of people, when you, you identify yourself as a TV producer, you don't look like a thug or a gang member. You know, you, you, people tend to, why not believe it? If, if a red flag doesn't go up, and usually women are not murderers. I mean, there are murderers or women, but you normally think of a guy, it's usually a stereotypical guy that does it. Now, if I walked up to you with tattoos and everything else, on my forehead it says murderer, and I say, hey, man, let's go take a walk into the woods. I'll give you a thousand dollars this thing. You're going to say, hell with that. You look like a murderer. Well, Pat Hop doesn't look like a murderess. Not that she is. So she is arrested. And sure enough, because she loves drama, um, she asks to use the bathroom. And when she does... <laughs> Following in form of what she did to Betsy, she stabbed herself in the neck, cut her wrists in a suicide attempt, but that was more, I think, theatrics. She wanted um, sympathy. She wanted people to feel bad for her. And they haul her off to jail where she is now waiting trial for these murders. And a lot of things begin to happen after she's arrested because it seems the police then say, huh, maybe we should take a look at this closer. And, of course, more stuff begins to happen. See, to me, because she's still professing her innocence at this point, if you're indicted by a grand jury, if you're charged with murder, if you then try and commit suicide, to me, that's a sign of guilt. But I don't think that's what she was going for. Yeah, that, that that's that's yeah, exactly. But it, it seems like there's just so much here, and um, at the same time, while this is going on, you have Russ, uh, Betsy's husband, who's in prison with life sentence. He is filing appeal, so all this is happening simultaneously. The, the, the killing in 2011, he, he goes to jail, he's in jail. In 2016, uh, Hawk is arrested. And now everything's coming full circle. Um, Russ receives a new trial where his attorneys are allowed to present to the jury the evidence that was withheld from them during his first trial, which was basically the few evidence that he was on RPs that his friends were not lying and that Pam was behind all of this, so much so that while he was um, going through his appeal action, she refused to cooperate with his attorneys in any way she performed. And why would she? She's the murderer. So he finally wins a day in court to retry himself and he wins the case. Russ is released. So obviously, if he is released and he is not the murderer, who is? So that's what this starts getting really dicey because then he files a lawsuit against the authorities who put him in prison, basically saying these guys are morons. There was ample evidence to prove that I was not the killer and you hit it 
you stonewalled us and you wouldn't allow it to come to life, which was, as you mentioned, videotape of him at the Arby's, somewhere totally different than his own home, uh, that there were cell phone towers pinging off of Pam's cell phone close to Betsy's house, and she said she had driven off. There's all this stuff going on. And there's also this big elf in the room is that when they tried to depose Pam Hub, she refuses to answer 92 questions by Russ's attorneys. So in law enforcement turns their attention to her on this case. Russ wins a $2 million settlement, basically saying the incompetency of law enforcement and the prosecutor in the case was having a relationship with one of the jurors. He was also, or that person, that prosecutor was also involved in hiding the evidence. So he was thrown to the, to the wolves and Russ wins his $2 million settlement, which doesn't really, um, it's the problem, his wife is dead. Whether he's the best husband or not, it doesn't matter. His wife's dead. So, law enforcement charge then your girl with the murder of Betsy. In part two of this story, we're going to get into all of the salacious details of Pam's trial and where we're at going forward with this. So, you may want to switch over to the Patreon page to catch part two. Until then, I've been Matt Ralston.